From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we're talking about two ideas that fly in the face of conventional thought. One of our guests will tell us about the creatures in our gut, bacteria. The other is going to talk about an idea that's in many of our heads, about how fake news impacts the political process. Both say we might not have the picture quite right. It's the microbial pathologist and the computational social scientist coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. About two-thirds of Americans are clinically overweight, and many of us associate that fact with bad diets and a lack of exercise. Some correctly point out that genes have a lot to do with it. But today on the program, we're going to be joined by a researcher who will tell us about another potential factor, our microbiome. And then, as we do every week on this program, we're going to be joined by someone whose research doesn't at first seem to have anything to do with the research being done by our first guest. She's going to talk about the media landscape and how what we believe about the phenomenon of fake news might not quite be right. Joining us today in studio is June Round, an associate professor in the Department of Pathology at the University of Utah. In a recent paper published in the journal Science, her team identified a specific class of gut bacteria that prevents mice from becoming obese. June, welcome to the program. Good to be here. And with us on the line from Boston, where she is a postdoctoral researcher working on questions of human behavior at Northeastern University, is Lisa Friedland. She was one of the authors on a recent paper, also published in Science, that found engagement with fake news sources during the 2016 election cycle was extremely concentrated, perhaps far more than many of us think. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Let's start today by talking about bacteria. Now, first, let me say in my own defense that we have been doing this show every week for more than a year, and that is the first time we've turned to Weird Al Yankovic for a musical introduction. In that song called Germs, he laments, I can't even see them, but I know they're up to something. What are they up to? Well, according to the research of our first guest, it might be something good. She and her research team have identified a class of bacteria that prevent weight gain perhaps by blocking the intestine's ability to absorb fat. June Round, let's start by talking about clostridia. Oh, man, say it for me. Clostridia. Clostridia. We've known for a while that this class of bacteria is one of the leading players in the maintenance of microbial gut function. Other studies have suggested that when these bacteria are absent, mice become obese. Your team took things a step further. You showed how these bacteria begin to disappear over time. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. So I'm an immunologist by training. Most people think about our immune system in the context of how it gets rid of the bad bugs. But one of the really important functions of our immune system is to select organisms that live on your body. So that's where this story began. Bacteria sounds scary, right? We're all told to be afraid of bacteria. But this bacteria, we know that it's not always that way. Can you talk a little bit about that? We're actually colonized with a ton of different types of clostridia. And actually, most of these clostridia are really, really good for us. One of the organisms we've uncovered is actually a group of organisms, and it helps to prevent uh, obesity in mice. But this species disappears over time. It, It starts to reduce over time. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Yeah, so we began these studies 
looking at how the immune system is functioning to determine what types of microbes live on our body. So I should be clear that the clostridia that are disappearing over time in our mouse model is because we have made a, a genetic deletion in the animal that makes the immune system dysfunctional. So this, it doesn't disappear over time in normal healthy mice. It's only when the immune system is not functioning at its optimum level. But what this did is it allowed you to make this connection between the immune system, between T cells and obesity. Right. I think what this allowed us to do is to draw a connection between the immune system and obesity that hasn't been appreciated before. One of the major immune system dysfunctions in our mice is the fact that they don't make a lot of antibodies in their gut. These are things that physically bind to microbes and in many cases get rid of microbes, but in the gut they can help to keep microbes in the intestine. But in people who have type 2 diabetes, in people who are obese, in their intestine they have less antibodies. This is an observation that's been known for a long time, but people have never really connected immune system function and obesity. So our studies are the first to really do this. Now, when you make this connection, you make you publish this report, I think immediately people go, super great, we've got the answer. That's got to be a little bit frustrating, right? Because we don't have the answer yet. You're right. We don't have the answer. I don't know if it's frustrating, but the thing that people have really kind of grasped onto with our study is, okay, can you give me these organisms so that I can become lean? Yeah, let me let me take some. Yeah, but we're fairly far from that, unfortunately. What we do know, though, is that this bacteria helps block the intestine's ability to absorb fat. That is amongst one of the functions, yes. And, and is that something that we think is translatable into a human system as well? So again, if we go to what's known in humans with kind of these same diseases that the mice have, which is it's a type 2 diabetes and uh, obesity, if we look in humans, we see the same loss of these clostridia and another bug that we see is an expansion of this desulfovibrio. So I absolutely think there is a possibility that we could replace these clostridia in humans as a potential therapy for these various diseases. But the key is to really identify what the grouping of bacteria is, because right now we've replaced you know, upwards of 50 different species. You can't translate that to humans. It's too many bacteria. So we have to get it down to like five. There's a gene involved in this too, CD36. What does it do and how does clostridia impact its function? CD36 is a receptor that's on the intestinal cells that line the gut. And this receptor is really important for binding to lipids and then absorbing them into the gut and then distributing them throughout the body. Clostridia, their function is to regulate the expression of CD36. At least that's what we think is going on. So clostridia actually downregulate the expression. So if you downregulate expression in intestine, you're going to absorb fewer lipids. One of the things I loved about the study is that it looks simple at first, and then it gets more complicated as you dive in. I think a lot of times we're looking for, we, we, we alluded to this earlier, we, we were hoping for this A causes B kind of thing, like, okay, now you've discovered this class of bacteria, give me some sort of thing. And at first that's what it looks like, but this is intertwined with age, it's intertwined with immunity, with other gut microbes, like you said, with lifestyle. How do you get your mind wrapped around like how complicated this is when you are looking for these relationships? Because we do want to find those. 
But how do you kind of like both look for those and also kind of appreciate the larger chaotic system that exists? This study took us six to seven years to actually finally get published because of its complexity. It spent like two years in review at journals because I think people have a hard time wrapping their brains around all of this stuff. I do think, though, that the answer could be as simple as just replacing the bad ones. It just took us this kind of very complicated route to get there. We're probably not going to be able to fix the immune system deficiencies in people who have type 2 diabetes and obesity. Maybe immune therapy. We're thinking about ways to do that, but that's more complex than just simply replacing the bacteria that you lose. This spent like two years in review. It didn't spend two years in review and then like nothing happened. Like it wound up in science. This is like a top tier research journal. At what point did you go from, I'm, I'm going to guess the crisis of confidence that must have happened at some point. At what point did you go from that and go like, no, this thing's going to see the light of day and people are going to talk about it? I've always had pretty high confidence in this project. Oh, I like that um, a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the first time that I've spent two years having my science in review it's part of the process, and sometimes if you have that confidence in a story, you're willing to just be very patient and do what people are asking you to do. And more often than not, even though it's a painful process, I feel like what the reviewers are asking you to do it makes the paper better. That's June Round. Her team study titled T-Cell-Mediated Regulation of the Microbiota Protects Against Obesity was recently published in the journal Science. June, can you stick around for a little while and listen in as I chat with our next guest? I would love to. That is Australia's answer to Green Day, the living in, doing the second single from their 2004 album, Modern Artillery. The song, which is called Tabloid Magazine, decries what at the time seemed to be the place where most fake news could be located. Now, it would seem if you listen to people on all sides of the political debate, fake news is all around us. And after the 2016 election especially, many people worried that fake news on social media may have influenced the results of the election. But at least according to one recent study of Twitter users, that concern might be a little bit overblown. The study found that just a tiny fraction of people saw and spread misinformation and that those users were already older and already more prone to one side of political thought. Lisa Friedland, your team's work doesn't say that fake news isn't a problem, but it does suggest that maybe the sky isn't falling. Is that right? That's right. We were looking at fake news on Twitter. The main result was that although there is a small, you know, moderate amount of it going around, it's highly concentrated in just a tiny percentage of the users who are both seeing and spreading the vast majority of what's out there. And we should probably start by noting that the definition you use to describe fake news, it really hones in on, you guys don't use this word, but I, I might call these people like bad actors. These are sources of information that lack any editorial norms or any sort of process for ensuring accuracy and credibility. The majority of the news that these sources put out is not credible, is not based on fact. That wouldn't include the sort of political definition, which I think people on both sides of the political spectrum use, which is sort of like, this is news I don't like. Right. So we're, we're going back to the sort of older, I would say, more real, authentic definition of fake news, which is that it's, it's things that are patently not true. The main point of how we decided to define it was that it's the fault of the publishers. There's a lot of publishers, especially on the Internet today, who 
just want to put out stories, and I don't really care if they're true or not. I mean, they, they kind of want them to be true, maybe, or maybe they just totally don't care. But the point is that these publishers are not doing the kind of fact-checking that makes sure your news is high quality and reliable. Those publishers who are being careless and who are spreading stuff that's been shown to be false are actually dangerous to the journalism and media system today. One of the interesting things about your study is you didn't just look at Twitter as a whole. You specifically looked at Twitter users that you could tie to a U.S. voter registration database. And I think that's important because you can say with a pretty high degree of certainty that the accounts you were looking at, the accounts that were receiving this information and spreading this information, they aren't bots. A lot of people are excited to use Twitter to study what's going on with people every day. If people are posting what they ate for breakfast or who they like for a political candidate, that's an amazing opportunity for social scientists. The problem with looking at Twitter data is that anyone can open a Twitter account. There's just such a heterogeneous mess of different stuff on Twitter that it's hard to know what you're really measuring. So an innovation in our work was we got a hold of public voter registration data and matched Twitter accounts to voter registration records, we ended up with a panel of 20-some thousand accounts that we could track and that we knew who they were. We know they're actual humans who live in the U.S., and it turned out to be a fairly representative sample of voters, no less. Okay, so when I read that part of the study, how, how you put together this database of accounts, my heart kind of went out for whoever it is. Maybe it was you. I don't know. Or maybe like you, you conned some undergraduates into doing this or something. But somebody had to go because there's no way to AI this, right? There's like somebody just oh. had to go one to one and go through the voter registration. Oh, no, and no, no, no. There is total like this is totally an AI. No, really? So is I, it really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, this so, I'm, well, I feel I, better. I didn't say AI. <laughs> So I'm, I'm actually a computer scientist by yeah. training. This was actually a bunch of code and some databases. Using this code, you identified super sharers and super consumers of fake news. And you were able to show that these folks accounted for most of the creation and engagement with misinformation. These numbers astounded me. The median super sharer tweeted 71 times per day. When you're just looking at the data, the humanity of the issues you're looking at, I think, can probably get lost. But did you ever sit back in your chair and think, oh, my God, who are these people who are tweeting 71 times per day? Absolutely. I mean, that was actually a, a big concern we had on the way to, to, to getting this ready for publication is we wanted to make sure that those crazy super shares were actual people because we didn't want those ones to end up being bots because that would show that our, our sample wasn't you know the way we'd promised it to be. <laughs> Since there were so few accounts that accounted for the majority of sharing and exposure, those ones we actually did manually inspect quite a few of them to make sure they really were the humans that they were supposed to be. When you say so few accounts, let's get to this is kind of the, the punchline of the story here, is we're talking about a very, very small percentage of overall Twitter users. Can you kind of give us the numbers and put them into context a little? So 80% of the exposure to fake news went to about 1% of the people. But even more concentrated than that, 80% of the sharing of fake news went to just 0.1% of the people. So in our sample, we had about 16,000 people total. 16 people accounted for 80% of the fake news sources we saw. You know, I was talking to somebody just this morning about it, and they said, wow, really? Are you still getting the wow, really? Because there's a big wow, really, to these findings. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't know what to expect 
when we started the study. We just said, we want to measure this in a grounded way. So, you know, the overall numbers, I think it's 5 to 7% of the content that we saw on Twitter for exposure and sharing, respectively, was fake news. And we're like, okay, that's not a huge amount, but it's not nothing either. That's like, you know, that's moderate. That's enough to maybe worry about. But then when we drilled down into, okay, like, who's, who's sharing this? That's when we found this, this huge concentration in a small number of counts. We actually divided sort of the rest of the study. We said, well, tell me about who these extreme people are, and then let's go to everyone else, and let's characterize who's sharing more among everyone else, just to get a, a better range of understanding what's going on. The term fake news has been around for a long time. Your team noted in the study that it comes up, at least in a 1925 article in Harper's Magazine. So it's at least or almost a century old. But we can really credit U.S. President Donald Trump for its most recent resurgence. He uses it all the time to attack the credibility of what he calls the liberal media. The irony, it would seem, is that the super shares of fake news that you located in your study tend to be conservative, like President Trump. Is that right? It is. We're trying not to take any sort of political stance on this. Fake news is a problem, regardless of who's sharing it. But in the 2016 election, it was definitely more heavily concentrated on the political right. Regarding political spectrum, one thing that I have heard, and this is you know, background knowledge, but not something we, we directly looked at, is that it's often the underdog party, the one not expected to win, that shares more fake news. So it's quite possible that it could switch over at different times. You did this work on Twitter. Is there a reason to believe that a similar analysis on Facebook might be significantly different? It's hard to know. There's been evidence that a lot of the traffic to fake news sites was coming from Facebook as opposed to Twitter, but we can't get that data as easily. We studied Twitter because the data was available. That's Lisa Friedland. She was part of a team whose study titled Fake News on Twitter during the 2016 U.S. presidential election was published in the journal Science earlier this year. And now for an introduction. Lisa, this is microbial pathologist June Round. And June, this is computational social scientist Lisa Friedland. Good to meet you, Lisa. Nice to meet you, June. June, for a long time, we've assumed that bacteria are really malevolent organisms bent on destroying us all. But you and your team are part of a pretty long scientific effort to redefine bacteria in a more accurate way. Lisa, a lot of people think fake news is the reason we have a president named Donald Trump. And your study doesn't say that isn't true, but it definitely puts things into context From both of you, I'm wondering, what does it feel like to be sitting with data that flies against conventional thought? And is it frustrating to hear people talk about things in ways that you know aren't backed by the research? It's been interesting. I think fake news is an exciting topic to work on because so many people are interested in it. But it also means the word gets used in different ways, as you mentioned, and everyone has their own pet theory as to what's going on. I think that's probably a little different from bacteria, where nobody knows exactly what's going on, but they think it's icky. (laughs) So I think in our field, we have to be careful because there are nasty bugs out there. So telling mothers to let their kids, you know, lick the floor, that may or may not be good because they could get something pretty nasty. My knee-jerk response when people say all bacteria are bad is like, oh, these people don't know what they're talking about. Because I think most of our bacterial interactions are good, but we still do have to temper that. Do you deal with the fact that there 
is fake news out there about what we should be doing with bacteria and what our interactions with bacteria should be? I mean, you just mentioned, you know, mothers should let their kids lick the floor. And I haven't seen that particular story. But people take those things to the extreme really quickly. And they're prompted to do so oftentimes by what they read in social and even the traditional media. I think there's some people out there who, I mean, they have these diseases and I get emails from people all the time. Every time we publish something, I get emails from people with various diseases, whether it's IBD. I got, you know, a couple emails from people who have type 2 diabetes and people who just can't lose weight. They're so desperate to find something that's going to cure their disease that they're willing to kind of take that leap of faith from a mouse study and think that that is going to be the cure. I don't know if that's fake news per se, more it's almost taking a leap of faith. The idea of desperation strikes me as kind of important here. And I'm wondering, Lisa, if we were trying to explain a phenomenon of people embracing news that isn't true. I mean, we talked about kind of like some of the the political factors and people being out of power. What do you think the most pressing factors are? Well, people will believe things from people that they trust. Most information that we think we know, the only reason that we know it is because somebody that we believe told us. People believe things that they want to be true. Belief congruent information is the phrase people use. If you already kind of think something and then you read it and it confirms what you thought already, you'll love it. You're definitely going to remember that one. And June, in the modern media world where we have so many sources of information and people decide who they're going to trust in some very interesting ways, I think, that can be a little bit dangerous, right? I mean, like the ability to spread information really quickly and to back it with social groups. I'm thinking about people who are anti-vaccination, right? Sorry to go there. (laughs) The the ability to spread information and to create communities that enforce it. If I was an immunologist, I think it would keep me up at night. This does keep me up at night. And it's funny you bring up the vaccination thing, because as Lisa was talking about fake news, that's like where my brain went, because that's probably one of the best examples of fake scientific news. But there's still camps of people who will not vaccinate their children because they really believe it's going to cause autism. This is a dangerous thing because I just heard driving over here that there are especially charter schools are being really affected because they somehow concentrate for people who don't vaccinate their kids. And now they're showing up with all these diseases that are totally preventable. So um, I think this is a great example where fake news can actually be dangerous. Lisa, when you were working on your study, it must have occurred to you because you're not just talking about fake news. You're talking about like the potential influence of the media environment on something that I think most people can agree is sort of important, the U.S. presidential election. But you also found that maybe it doesn't have quite the effect that we think. Are there other areas that you would like to study? For instance, the spread of of health information that you think might have similar results that maybe we're more worried about misinformation than the numbers say that we should be. Absolutely. That's actually an area we are starting to look at. Some of my co-authors are now looking into health misinformation. One thing that I've been coming to understand with, you know, a lot of work on Twitter and on misinformation is that it's not just individuals randomly sort of changing their mind because they got hit by something. I mean, it is that too. But there's also campaigns of people out there who have a vested interest in changing people's minds. And so a lot of the vaccine misinformation or the political misinformation, you have some influential actors who believe something and really want to get everyone else to believe it too. And so that's why you get these like very active communities who are out to push their message. 
Let me take a little step back here and make sure that we're not missing anything. June, was there a question that I should have asked that I didn't ask when I was chatting with Lisa? So, Lisa, you mentioned that you feel like it's the fault of the publishers who are putting out this information and not checking their sources. It just made me think of the publication process in science. And there is, I guess, a whole movement right now of reproducibility. So it's putting a lot of onus on publishers in the scientific realm to really ensure a rigorous scientific process. But from the research side of things, it can be perhaps a bit cumbersome because this means it costs more money to get your research published. You know, I I talked earlier in the show about how it took two years to get this study published. I was wondering from your perspective, how do you regulate the publishing process? How do you create an environment where you ensure that what's being published is not fake, but don't go so overboard that it takes so long to get stories out? It's tricky. Science is one of these venues where we want all of us to be able to have a lot of trust in published results. We want to have certain institutions that everyone just says, oh, yeah, we know they're careful. We know they get their facts right. If they say it, it's true. That is not something we want to lose. But as you're saying, we want people to be able to get their work out without it taking two years or three years or however long. One thing that good institutions can do is to be clear about when they make mistakes, to say, you know, we're going to do our best to get everything right. And when we get something wrong, we'll tell you. And that's okay. That's the process. And Lisa, was there anything from my conversation with June that you were hoping to have her elaborate on? I don't know if I'm totally off my rocker in drawing this comparison, but when I start thinking about the gut, you know, the gut bacteria, I just think, oh, whoa, there's a mess. I know that something really important is happening there, but there's all these different types of cells and types of organisms, and I don't really understand what's going on. And I was like, that's a lot like Twitter, really. (laughs) We know that something is important that's happening there, but you don't know up front exactly what to go about measuring, and you don't know which are the good guys and which are the bad guys and exactly how powerful each group is. So I thought, oh, yeah, these really are just these large, messy ecosystems with a lot of interactions that we're trying to wrap our heads around. I love that, Lisa. That was good. We're just about out of time. June Round, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you for having me. And Lisa Friedland, thank you. Thank you. We broadcast Undisciplined every Friday on Utah Public Radio, but if you miss us there or you live outside of Utah, you can catch us wherever you get your podcasts. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts, and our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.